uh, I would refer you to that, that great quote. I think it was by Eisenhower where he said, planning is everything, but plans are nothing. If you're a BMW or automotive lover or just love really awesome car design, you may have heard of Chris Bangle. At only 35 years old, he was the man in charge of BMW design. So all the models and brands from BMW, Mini, Rolls-Royce, all of that reported up to him. And his designs shook up the automotive industry for 17 years. Go to Google, type in Chris Bangle, and you'll see people still talk and write about it today. Now he has his own firm that reapproaches design from all sorts of products, from smartphones to alcohol bottles. We talked from his studio near Turin, Italy, about everything from self-driving cars to AI to how he's designed starting his own company and growing it as an inspiration to his employees as well as the community he's a part of. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. So maybe we could start with this, Chris. Let's go way back in time and go back to the time. I know you had a defining moment with your mom. She was, I think she was doing some dishes or something like that, that really, something happened that really changed your point of view. It'd be interesting to hear that story. Okay, well, uh, the story, and it's a true story, um, that my mom, when I was a little kid, was putting the dishes away, as moms do, and she had this tendency to rearrange them while she was doing it. So like she put the plates she'd lift up the stack to put the clean ones further underneath or she'd reach in the back and pull the cups forward and then put the clean cups in the back and things like this. Right. And as a little kid, you don't know anything about wear and tear or, or rotation of uh, plates or anything like that. Right. Instead, it just seemed strange. So I asked my mom, you know, well, why are you doing that mom? And her, her response was, well, because the plates have feelings and they, they want to be used and, you know, these in the back, if we don't bring them forward, they never get used and they don't want to hurt their feelings, right? <laughs> Which, for some reason or another, really stayed with me. And uh, literally ever since then, I think there's been an undercurrent in my thinking about the world to try and perceive objects as actually having a life, a secret life, uh, their own volition, their own will, if you want. And I, I, I think maybe my mom really believed that, you know? I can see how it's defining. Have you passed that on that same story and that same moment on to your, I think you have a son, right? Yeah. Well, I catch my wife doing this every once in a while with the plates. <laughs> and then I say to her, my mom would be proud of you right now. And I say, I, 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 you know, uh, I love it. but, but uh, in our family, we talk about stuff as being alive a lot, just because I guess when you grow up in a car design family, that's how you talk. So if you look based on that, if you were to look around the world, what objects out there from a feelings perspective are kind of, I guess, crying or sad or what's in desperate need of a design hug as you look around the world? That's interesting that you would put it that way. Um, I, I followed you right up to the point until you said design hug. And then, <laughs> and then I kind of walked off the, the scale because um, uh, I guess they do need a design hug, just like people do, you know, they, they, they need to be felt better. But if I hug somebody because I think they're feeling sad, doesn't mean I want to change them. Hmm. I want to make them feel better. Right. And uh, 
maybe some things, for instance, you know, one of my real fascinations is uh, power line uh, transmission tower poles. These, not poles, these kind of constructions of towers, of uh, a lattice work of, of struts and, and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And every one of them seems to be different. You would think they're all doing the same job. They're just holding up a wire. But it seems like every engineer out there has got to do his own you know, piece, make his own mark with it. And some of them, they look absolutely like they're just going to walk off the landscape and they're just there to take over the world. And other ones, they just, I don't want to be here. You know, please, I'm so sad. And maybe those are someone's do need a design hug. <laughs> well, you know, I live over in San Francisco and in the Oakland area, there's these massive, I don't know if you've seen them, but there are these massive uh, shipping cranes. And urban legend has it that George Lucas used it as inspiration for his at-ats or AT-ATs from Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, probably we as human beings are hardwired to see the entire world through our own perspective. So we're always trying to find people in trees or we're always trying to find gesture and movement in, in about anything. And to take that, that one step further and say, well, maybe it really does have a feeling about it. Hmm. Uh, this is what, what we've been trying to do, I think, in cars. You do this naturally. And then later when we got into the Archie cartoons, of course, that's the whole basis for it. So I guess based on that then, um, and you go back into the, and when you're in the car industry or, or back in time a little bit now in your mind, which one car's emotions were the most personal to you? Like what, which ones do you have the, have the most connection to? Uh, that's a really unfair question because if I <laughs> seriously get into it, I'll get all broken up and then you'll have a very short. Uh, <laughs> you can cry. Uh, it's okay. I'll hand you a virtual. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. You can filter that up. <laughs> you know, there's this saying, if you want to understand art, you have to appreciate uh, the creative process. But if you want to appreciate the creative people, the designers, you have to understand pain. And the process of making a car is no less painful than any other really intensive uh, design project. We used to say this line that on every BMW, there's a particular line on the car, you know, a crease or, or, a, or a, a joint or, or maybe a graphic line that actually is there because it indicates the depth of blood that, the, that we wallowed in to get it to that point. Wow. Like we can't, that, there was that much blood that had to flow before this thing came to that, that wow, realization. Wow, that's biblical. Which is I love a, it. Which is a total exaggeration. But at the same time, uh, I can't look at the cars without seeing that huge human investment in them. And some cars, it was a very, very painful one, you know, and other ones, you somehow tripped through it in a kind of delightful manner. And when it's all done, you went, really, how did that happen? But those are very, very few. Most of them, it's really painful. That makes sense. I can imagine when you give birth to something like that, it, just like everything else, it's, it's wrought with all kinds of the full spectrum of emotion. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And particularly when you're in the role of a design director, you have a, a very unusual relationship to all the products. Uh, as you know, design uh, is a competitive process. Also in the car industry, you go in with many models uh, that compete with one another. And then slowly but surely, you, you winnow them down to the one that's going to be the final one on the road. And you have to be in the middle of that entire phenomenon. But not from an abstract point of view, like it doesn't really matter to you if this guy wins or loses. Uh, you want them to be so emotionally involved that they give their all and they, they're, you know, they're completely ready to, to, uh, 
to you know jump ship if their 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 product loses but at the same time you need that guy tomorrow too this isn't a losing team that you send home to some other coach these are your guys so this entire affair of putting high-end emotional stress on people to get the absolute absolute best design out of them and at the same time realizing you got to conserve them for the long game it, that's in itself a little bit of a stress yeah that sounds like a serious art form uh in fact i want to dig into that car part of your your life and what that was like here in a second but i'd be curious first to to hear whether this happens to you like for me when i'm when i'm looking around the world um and i'm watching how things are designed for entertainment purposes versus reality uh, I, that's one of the areas that fascinates me for example when i'm watching a hollywood depiction of technology uh, as someone who grew up in the technology industry myself I'm always fascinated by how they depict it, specifically lately some of the fear-based technology, you know, Terminators and Ex Machina and AI and all that stuff. And I'm curious, maybe when you look at that uh, in your mind's eye, as you're painting things, you know, how someone like you uh, or a real designer in real life might change that whole perception if they were to really truly work on it. Uh, you're you're very right that that's a it's a fascinating um, field. Uh, this I use the word virtual reality, but not in the sense that we understand it in cinemagraphic terms, but much more in the sense of the psychology of what we're trying to do. We are trying to convince you something is real, it is not, but the plausibility behind it has to overcome any of your doubts so that you get swept away with it and you allow the entertainment to to you know ride on that sort of suspended disbelief effect and. Uh, the problem comes when those moments of suspended disbelief form the backdrop against which reality has to be created and suddenly you realize that you're playing a game against some kind of ghosts which are not there. You know, you're, you're fighting spooks, uh, you know, what do you call it, they're fighting ghosts, fighting um, spirits that are, are, um, are not tangible. It's hard to fight them. So, for instance, in the robotics world, the, our idea of robotics has been so uh, uh, formed and, and uh, delineated by what we've seen in the cinema, cinematic world that it's almost impossible for us to get these Terminator images out of our head. And when you combine that along with natural aversions that we have to oversized humans, uh, you, you realize that if we're going to get robots to do anything for us of any, of any measure, we have to come up with an entirely different way to approach it rather than just scaling up or down a human being. And this is where, where in our studio, we, we do a lot of work in robotics. And our approach is what, what I call um, artifactual elegance. I want you to note the difference between artificial intelligence, which is kind of a, a false intelligence. It's a synthetic intelligence. This is artifactual. It's about stuff, artifacts, that is elegant. And that has nothing to do with being anthropomorphic or somehow humanoid or anything else like that. It has everything to do with acting as elegantly as we would like it to act, just like artificial intelligence says we want it to think as intelligently as we think it should think. And by approaching a robot in that manner, you don't worry about it having to look like a person for it to do its job. It can look like something entirely different. Uh, you're also, if, yeah, you're also potentially not freaking out that it's thinking it. You're looking at it as acting 
um, and, and performing something versus like, oh my gosh, it's AI. It's it's going to be the singularity. It's the death of mankind because all of these machines are going to create a consciousness and take us all over. Yeah, I mean, this is not at all what we want to have happen at all. But at the same time, there are times when we need help. Uh, if you want a, a robot to get you out of bed because you are you're injured, you're weak, you're old, you have all kinds of issues where you you do need help, then uh, if it's going to be a humanoid robot, this this thing is going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger dimensions. It's going to be huge, and it is going to scare the the pants off of you. And maybe at the end of the day, it's only running on on thirty horsepower full of engines, but at the same time, you're terrified of it. But we as car designers, because we work in another world, we work in a world of a metaphorical explanation through gesture, we're able to give you 500 horsepower <laughs> in a machine that you want to go out and pet. You want to go stroke it. Yeah, now, you're not scared that? of it. <laughs> well, and that's, let's say, in an aesthetic sense, you're not repelled by it, let's hope. And I often tell people that if we're able to give you a Jaguar and tell you this, this car is a Jaguar and you will see in it a kind of a feline aggression. You'll see this predator look, the stance, the pounce ready to jump out of the jungle and you'll say you're right it's a jaguar but it doesn't have fuzzy ears or a tail or, or spots on its coat or a nose but it's still a jaguar if we can do that then imagine what that world could do to a world like robotics which is actually stifling itself with this fixation on humanoid great point great point uh, and exciting to think about what the future looks like when we uh, divorce ourselves from that you know, that media driven idea and start embracing something where it integrates into our life in a, in a more beautiful way. So, so I guess going back into the car world, you know, when I, I remember first hearing about you because I was a BMW guy and everybody was talking about, you know, Chris Bangle and his designs and how much you shook everything up. What you've obviously been described as being very controversial, but why, why was that? Why, why was it so controversial? Pissing people off, controversial, same thing, or different? <laughs> <laughs> Take it any way you want. <laughs> well, well, I suppose you had to kind of be there, as they say. Uh, the times were those in which uh, the, the BMW was a very uh, traditional company from the outside. From the inside, it wasn't at all. From the inside, it was far more dynamic than I think people perceived it to be. Uh, when I got to BMW in 1992, it had a kind of uh, perception, even among the design community, of super go slow, incremental changes. Their idea of evolution is in tiny steps. Uh, they'll come up with a brand new car and nobody knew the difference between it and the last one. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. Which is very unfair uh, because they did some dramatic work back then as well. But let's just say that the overriding aura was that because there was a huge amount of focus on the driving capability of the car. Um, its performance for value, things that, you know, made the, the, the Beamer the, the hot car of choice of the yuppies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it took the 2002 from just being a small box sedan to being absolutely the prototype for all sports sedans. And that moment in their own internal history, they were already completely geared up for this change into a new world where they had to make all kinds of new products and they had to come up with cycles of product uh, evolution and revolution, which worked on different time scales and never had before, et cetera, et cetera, uh, appealing to a global market in ways they never had to before. Lots of things that, that of course, we were brought into to actually make, uh, make happen that was very well known within the company, but outside the company uh, that had not been communicated at all as their intention or their 
their spirit. So when they actually began to, to move, it wasn't because I changed the opinion of the management inside or I convinced them to do something they wouldn't have done otherwise. It was because we worked together hand in hand to, to execute a strategy that they themselves were very, very much a part of. It's just the rest of the world outside took a while to catch up. Right. So if anything, there's some lessons learned there in communication and at what point uh, internal strategy has to become known to the outside world. That makes sense. That makes sense. It must have the pressure of that, uh, not only driving that evolution for just one brand, uh, but you had, you had no, you had numbers of brands and different models coming up to you and huge teams of creative people, hundreds and hundreds of creative people, as you said earlier, who are competing and who are trying to, you know, become this orchestra of creation underneath lots of different timelines and lots of different models and lots of different strategies. And so uh, it's hard to imagine, I think, for just the average person in, to look into the window of that. But it'd be interesting to hear what it took inside of you to manage all of that happening during that time period. Uh, yeah, this was a real moment of a time of growth for me, too, because imagine uh, as a, an American coming out of an experience in General Motors and Fiat, uh, totally unknown. Uh, nobody really knew what I'd worked on. None of it had been uh, released to the public. No cars I'd worked on had been sold yet. When BMW found me and they said, okay, we want you to come do this. And to come into a team which was already extremely well uh, versed among the BMW way of doing things, as well as their own uh, attitudes about how they felt the company should go. Yeah, I would say that was more than my share of uh, uh, high-tension moments, shall we put it, <laughs> uh, in moving into that role. But uh, I learned a couple of things along the way, how to deal with it. Uh, I learned you have to be very truthful. I mean, I thought I was before, but then I learned you have to be really truthful. And you have to have uh, an ability to always communicate a perspective which is uh, from a macro level, not from a micro level. You have to always be ready to explain things to people on one layer higher than they want to talk about it because they, they will drag you down into the minute before you know it. And it's their job to do that. It's your job to stay above that and make sure that that works together on this next macro level, layer higher. And that requires development of tactics, different types of approaches, ways of dealing with people that you didn't have to do before when you were down there in the mud with them, you know, elbowing for your design to get chosen along with theirs. It's, it's, it's not unsimilar to having moved from being a player to a player coach. You know, these are these kind of guys on the basketball court that are the player coach. Mm -hmm. they, they are coaching, but they're out there shooting too, right? Yeah. There's those kind of – when you move away from that, when you move into a, a management role where – your guys are out there on the field and you cannot uh, tie strings to their wrists and try and do this whole thing like a Geppetto puppet show. You've got to trust them. That means your communication to them has to be at the level where they get the bigger picture. Your job is to make sure they understand the bigger picture. And, and so uh, even across brands, uh, you develop the techniques which allows you to do that. And as you say, it requires people who are, are good at what they do and, and the ability to let go and let them do their job. It, that's a huge lesson, I think, when you start trying to, to manage. And I, I presume with creative people, it's uh, extra challenging. And I, and I, I think, you know, I, I want to spend, believe it or not, even a lot of time outside the car industry. But I want to I do want to take the opportunity since we're talking 
to dig into one of the premises of the future for cars. And, you know, I'm in San Francisco in the Silicon Bay area. And so, of course, I'm steeped in a lot of beliefs out here. And what would be interesting to talk about would be going with the belief that all cars will be self-driving. And if you kind of go with that, and we, we spend some time imagining that future, there's a couple different directions that get tossed around out here. One is, you know, we own these cars, uh, they're self-driving, sure, uh, but we continue to buy them personally. We buy into their brands. We buy into the feelings and emotion of the designs of them that are you know, that motivate us. And the second is that self-driving cars actually become more of a service. So kind of that Uberization of the industry where I guess like an elevator, someone else owns the elevator. We just push a button, we get in, it takes us where we need to go and we pay for it like internet access. And I'd be interested to hear your point of view of maybe there's a third thing I'm not thinking of or how does how does the industry evolve if self-driving uh, continues along one of those two directions and how does design live in that world? Mm. Well, um, you know, I, I can just imagine all of us going out there and buying our own elevator. <laughs> Not really. Uh, just like that lease I took out to have my own taxi. Not really. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, to, to lots and lots of uh, private people who invested in a new type of a car just so that they could make money with Uber. Uh, you know, they actually did do that. They actually did get their own taxi. So some things like this are maybe not as far-fetched as you think. I think we don't really understand um, the implications of self-driving cars as much as we would like to. Uh, first of all, I, I would just tell you from the get-go, uh, I believe uh, very, very fundamentally in the premise of a self-driving car. And at the same time, I fundamentally do not believe in the premise of it requiring a human being sitting behind the wheel to somehow take over in an emergency. To me, this is this is akin to having a hole in the side of an elevator where the cables run by. So just in case it drops, you can reach through and grab it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I kind of don't see that happening. Right. So uh, I'm a real fan of self-driving cars, but I'm not a fan of this. Um, nervous Nelly legislation that says, let's make sure there's a person sitting there so that Lord only knows what will happen, but somehow they'll wake up from their nap and in the nanosecond they have to react, they'll do something to not kill themselves. Okay, it either works or it doesn't work. All right, that's how I see it. Uh, at the same time, having said that, there are implications of what a self-driving car actually does and can do and then will do that are themselves something we don't understand. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, when we were doing work on self-driving cars for, for a project for Singapore, we, of course, pitched it with them in the sense of, look, you don't have parking problems anymore because you just tell your car, go away, come back in an hour, right? Right. And maybe go make money while you're doing it by giving somebody a ride. So that whole kind of scenario was back then very much in vogue. Nowadays, if you try and explain that to someone, the, the image that comes up is of thousands of empty vehicles having been sent on their owners on an energy-reduced rotation to come and get me in an hour, of course, but don't use any more energy than you need. So you have all these molasses, slow, empty cars blocking all the roads because they're just trying to get around the block in the slowest way possible. 
I mean, it, it's like instant overnight nightmare scenario. Right. In fact, um, uh, somebody says that uh, the car driving will go um, uh, faster because of self-driving cars. But actually, uh, there's the other scenario that says people who are driving their own cars will take advantage of the fact that they have to react to them. And so they'll just aggressively push these guys all over the place. And by doing so, you know, even Google had these issues as at a four-way four stop sign. How does their car kind of get out and take its turn when nobody wants to give it a turn? Yeah. So is there some parent kind of operating system living on top of all of this that has to make ethical decisions like, oh, these two cars, one of them mechanically failed and and they're about to hit each other and one has inside of it a family of four and the other one has a 45 year old man so who who goes off the cliff or who swerves the other way yeah i, I, I oh, to be quite fair i'm not really a, a fan of these uh, doomsday scenarios of accidents because um self-driving cars would probably put such a wide margin of safety in that that would never happen interesting okay they would take into account what happens if the mechanicals fail so the idea that the you know one guy's following too close and they have an accident they just won't follow too close sorry but at the same time that means they won't drive with a certain pep and a certain aggressiveness that we're used to because we're all used to taking those sort of risks so th this whole idea of a mixed traffic environment how does it work and etc these are all things that have to be uh, worked out however the advantages of self-driving cars are are to me so uh, clear I mean, even the even the insurance industry is is looking at this in, in kind of their own doomsday scenario because they realize they can't charge all these premiums because there just aren't these accidents. Right. Right. All right. So, I mean, even though the rest of us should be saying fantastic, but that industry is saying, oops, they want the cash cow. So the, the, the disruption effect of the self-driving cars is far, far from being understood, I think. Now, if we could take that to the, the next step, which is what does that mean for car design? Um, to me, it's more interesting because that's my bailiwick, so to speak. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Well, we, we've looked at this in a number of ways. Also ran a project here about a year ago, which was um, subtitled On Beyond Gina, like as if to say, what would we do if we had a project that was as spectacular as the Gina, the, the car made out of cloth, was in BMW, how would we go beyond there? And of course, we looked at all sorts of different scenarios about what vehicles are, what, what life in a vehicle is, et cetera. And the minute that you step out of this sort of owner responsibility for recuperating money on what they've invested in, you can enter into, which is a car today. I buy something not because it's what I want. I buy because I have to resell it. That's why there's so many silver cars out there. Right? Mm. Or this is what the dealer said he'll take back because I leased it. You can, you can lease the pink car, but uh, I'm not going to give you a deal on it when it comes back. You know, this this is one of the driving mechanisms behind boring cars. Right. So once that little ticket is gone, it opens up phenomenon that that we think could be easily exploited by design. You just have to get car companies to understand it. If, if you go back to the idea of reselling your car, for instance, okay, let's say you really like a pink car. Okay. Well, now what are your options? Not too many. You have to sell the car later. You have to get it back to the dealer or he's got to sell it. And these guys, everybody just resists it. But if the car sold itself, if every day you got into your car, your car told you, hey, you know what? Today I had 16 offers. The nearest offer was uh, 20 miles away. It's this much money. Actually, you could make a lot more money, but that guy's 50 miles away. 
and you say, you know, I don't sell today. If your car was proactively trying to sell itself, there's guys out there who want a pink car. And you would probably feel a lot better about buying a pink car because you want it because you don't worry about that. Wow, I've never thought of objects proactively selling themselves. That's that's a super interesting in cars and maybe even beyond cars. That's a very interesting idea. Oh, I, I'm sure this will be uh, uh, part and parcel. I mean, what was this thing introduced by Google? This hot button that when you're when you're out of a particular uh, food you like, like pizza or something, you hit the hot button and suddenly in 20 minutes a pizza shows up. And I said Amazon, right. one right, of those right. two. Yeah. Okay. So. It's not the internet of things, it's things coming into the internet, so to speak. And this give and play back and forth between these two, uh, the wonderfulness of the age we live in right now is it's far from being resolved and it gives opportunities to lots of people. Uh, Unfortunately, these are opportunities which is not in the, the kind of market of the people who are losing their opportunities. And so unfortunately the balance still leaves a lot to be desired. That's fascinating. So while you're talking, I'm thinking, about Tesla a little bit. And I'm thinking, you know, is the magic of Tesla that they were early with electric cars and they're just ahead, but that uh, everyone else is going to be there. Everyone else is going to have electric cars they are going to be self-driving. And so there needs to be something that pushes us out on the edge a little bit more that can live as an, as an idea around this that has yet to be pushed into the market or into our awareness. Well, you have to give uh, Musk a lot of credit for for Tesla. It's uh, any new business like that, particularly the car business and even design. It works a little bit like um, like energy layers on a uh, on a subatomic particle. You know how these work? They, they're kind of like uh, it sits inside of a, a, a ring wall, and once you give it enough energy, it can make it up over that ring wall, and now it's on a higher layer. It has a higher layer of energy because it made it up over that barrier. And now it sits in this new ring. And if you can get it to drop back down, it gives up that energy. And that's why light is released by photons and all kinds of stuff. Okay. And a new idea like uh, uh, an electric car that is a high performance vehicle, etc., has that same sort of barriers to get over. And once uh, the, the originator of it, the owner of it, uh, the, the protagonist of it, in this case, Elon Musk, has invested enough of his own energy, his personality, his passion, his money, his communication capability to bring that concept up over that wall, so to speak. It is now on a higher energy level and it begins to radiate its own energy. It begins to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And other people say, why didn't we get there? Well, because you had this barrier to get over and he actually took the time and trouble to do it. So this, this, this to me garners a huge amount of respect. But it's like that for almost anything. Uh, the reason that car design, uh, I mean, the other day my son declared it officially dead. I don't, did you know that, by the way, that car design died during the Super Bowl? No, what happened? During the Super Bowl, Kia ran an ad called the uh, Walk in Closet. Did you see it? No, I didn't. In this advertisement, um, uh, some guy who lives a beige life goes into his quote unquote walk in closet, and in it is the actor Christopher Walken. And Christopher Walken compares a new car's design to a colored sock. And he says, this car, this Kia, is like this sock. Okay. So if this is, as my son says, car design has officially jumped the shark. That was the moment when when Christopher Walken compared this car, which, okay, we could just debate later whether this is really a colorful car or not. Let's say he compares this car to a sock. Car design has jumped the shark. So game over. We can all go home now. 
You think it's just going to be done by computers for for a while? Instead of oh, people? I wish. <laughs> oh, I wish. Goodness gracious. Uh, no, the problem is that car design doesn't know how to energize itself up this this particular energy barrier because they live in a, a walled-in territory by brands right. who are the most terrified entities on the earth. And these brands uh, are far too nervous to allow car design to actually get on with their job as they should and get out there and give us something fresh and new. So we wind up with uh, Jump on the Shark. So what have you what have you learned from going from this huge massive team at BMW to this like how many folks do you have with you at at uh, at the associate? Uh, well, I think altogether we're about ten people. Okay, H- how has that changed you, and what have you learned as far as going from this you know cr- you know being the conductor of this massive orchestra to having this tiny team that you're working with? Well, there's many things that are within the team itself, but they're also the fact that we're in an environment here of a small country village, basically, uh, off in the wine district of Italy. And that is a, it's a beautiful scenario to begin with, but it's extremely personal. Mm. And when I first got to Italy this time around, uh, my architect here has worked with us on the house. And I told him of our plans, you know, to, to make a design studio here, etc. He said to me, oh, that's, that's cool, Chris. But you know what they say around here? They say the fox is pretty because he has a pretty tail, which means it's okay for you, Chris, you clever fox, to make money on, on design and, and get clients and do all kinds of stuff like that. But you're only pretty if the tail, and that's everybody around you, your designers, the, the modelers, the, the local people, the restaurants, the hotels, the guy who pumps the gas in the local gas station, if they feel somehow that they've also benefited from this, that makes them pretty. And so you're pretty. And I like the idea that it keeps you very much aware of the fact that other people are depending on you to somehow up the game for everybody. And it it makes you feel more responsible in a local way. And I think that's something that only in a small team in a constellation like this here, I could have thought of or thought was relevant. It turns out, however, I tell people about this in my speeches when I give talks. And I was at Stanford not too long ago and gave a talk at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And some months later, uh, the CFO of a big company uh, sent me an email months later, and he said, you know what, Chris, that fox metaphor really hit home, and I've tried to apply it to my own team and try to think about it in my own life, and I want to thank you for it. So that was one of those things that I think is it's universal. Yeah, that's a powerful metaphor, and I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that if you chop a fox's tail off, it's just kind of a weird-looking rodent, isn't it? Um, so it is it is that tail that makes it, and it is that, uh, like you said, it's all the it's all the other people, not the main body that um, that if if it's beautiful, then it rises the tide for everything. Well, you can ask you can ask that question about about design. Is design a pretty fox? Are we doing a good job? And I would quite honestly, I tell you this: that we're a fox with a fake tail. That we're really good at faking a pretty tail, but we really don't make a pretty tail. What do you mean? Well, what 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 is our obligation as designers? Okay, on a, on a very low level, our obligation is to uh, bring in a certain functional and aesthetic rhythm into uh, our produced and manufactured and consumed world so that the end users are happy and also the guy who produces is it happy and everybody goes home happy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the reality of the matter is, is that ignores the fact that the tail is much bigger than just the guy who made the product and the guy who used the product. The tail is everybody around us. And in particular, when I look at some things that happen in the world, do you remember when the, uh, the riots were in, in London? Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago. Okay. If you actually followed the, the, the news about that, 
to me, it was very disturbing because it was a lot about young people who had lost hope. They'd lost a vision that they were they were enfranchised, like anybody wanted them to be part of the system. And if you look around you anywhere in the world, you'll find that same type of operative that that people don't feel that we're engaged. You know, I, I love robotics and everything like this, but, but half the people you talk to think that anybody who likes robotics, they're just out there to eliminate the human content, which isn't really true. You're, you're here to try and make everything a better world. But I believe unless design realizes that we've got an obligation to make all that stuff valuable and everybody engaged and participants and, and enfranchised, then sorry to tell you, but we're just faking the tale. That's interesting. So are there things that from a designer's perspective they can do specifically to stop faking that as much? Well, unfortunately, we're, we are hardwired uh, to the idea that there is uh, good, bad, right, and wrong. And okay, this is the way we are, right? And if you look at how modernism has taken over the concept of good, bad, right, and wrong, you will see that uh, it established such notions as uh, kitsch, which didn't exist before, right? Mm -hmm. As a way to marginalize anything that didn't belong to that core concept that followed canons such as form follows function or less is more or anything like that, right? And in doing so, it took out the human element entirely. It, entirely, right? It created a world in which we think it looks better if a machine made it for another machine than it looks if it was done for by a human being for another human being. And just now, in a few recent years, we've begun to open up our ideas through rapid manufacturing techniques, etc., that even things that machines make for other machines can look rather humanistic, you know, some very interesting details and surfacing and stuff, which I really like. I mean, I'm the first one to say I really love this stuff. But if I was to give you a product where there was a, a different seam on one side than on the other, and the same product is sitting next to it and looks different, you would say that product's defective. You wouldn't say, oh, look, there's the hand of the guy who built it, right? Hmm. And this is, as long as we maintain this idea that um, correctness and goodness is based on machine qualities and not human qualities, then we will continue to marginalize the role of the human. And this is what only design can decide to change. They can, they can decide, we together collectively, can decide if, if we like something which is not a machine for a machine. You know, it's interesting because recreationally, I signed up for a ceramics class and uh, I was like, I want to be able to throw a pot on a wheel. And so I sat down and I, th you know, created a pot. And when I looked at it, I thought that looks like a machine made it. And I got kind of pissed off and, and immediately said, I don't want to throw pots. I want to hand build something that looks like it was created not by a machine. And so I, I can resonate very, very uh, strongly with what you're talking about. And it actually also reminds me of, um, we have this book at our house of that Japanese art where you repair ceramics with gold, which you mentioned also. Uh, Kintsukuroi. Yeah. Kintsukuroi. Yeah, you, you, Beautiful, you, huh? Yeah, you mentioned that actually. I'd, I'd be curious how, how you look at that as a philosophy because it certainly is an amazing, uh, we, we bought that book instantly when we saw it. We thought, wow, that is amazing that they're celebrating the repair like that. You know, I'm so pleased that you did that because that shows there's a, an innate uh, appeal to this effect. For your listeners who don't know the concept, the Kintsukuroi is the Japanese art of repairing, usually broken ceramics, I think, with uh, gold or silver so that 
all those cracks and, and chips suddenly get filled in very beautifully and with a tracery of gold or silver. And when you look at it, you go, gosh, I think it looks better since he cracked it than what it was before, right? Right. You have that feeling. And uh, when that was introduced to my studio here, my son actually brought the idea over to explain to us what our aesthetic philosophy of the studio is. Uh, we realized that this is a very, very, very powerful directive because it's telling you, don't try to go back to a hypothetical ideal state, which may not have existed anyway. You know, some people would take a farmhouse like this and try and return it to its roots. But, you know, it never had those roots. It never really was in an ideal state. It was always in an in-between one condition and another, and it probably looked like crap in, in all those conditions. But by applying a certain love and appreciation for, for bringing this Kinsukuroi effect into it to bring it forward, people say, we're glad you repaired it the way you did. It's not how it was, but it's nicer and, and more engaging in this manner. And if you look at that as a philosophy of dealing with the world, imagine if, if we could convince ourselves it's not about lamenting the fact that the past is not here anymore and trying to go back to it. It's about taking everything as it is and trying to repair it with such passion and elegance and cleverness and intelligence that people say, well, good thing it was broken to begin with because it did such a great job. It's, it's interesting if you think about your own life like that, actually, and the parts of you that are broken, you know, you kind of have a choice on how you repair. <laughs> so you can, you can potentially think of it as like, I can repair it with gold or silver and the repaired me can be even more beautiful than the broken me. I, I hope everybody can understand that idea because to me, once you embrace it, it's truly, truly wonderful. And you feel better about a lot of things. The other phil philosophical piece that I picked up on from you recently was this Archie Arch project, which I want you to talk about. But specifically, it was the story of you guys. I guess there's a few of you guys in the car or something like that and someone reacted to a situation differently. And it really, when I heard that story, I thought, wow, that is, that's a powerful framing mechanism for the decisions that we make when we're looking at challenges around us. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful, you like that. Um, just as a piece of background, uh, I got into a lot of arguments about people about what car design is. And when I tell them that you can do it on things that's not with wheels, they look at you really funny. Uh, so sometimes to set out a point, uh, I would deal with ideas and objects that have no sense of gesture or character beyond what we know them as and begin to play with them as a car designer would. Okay, let's, let's amp up the gesture. Let's give it an attitude without putting eyeballs on it and hands on it and feet on it like you would normally do in a kind of a normal cartoon world. And this got to the point where I'd taken a triumphal arch that I'd seen in, uh, in Croatia with, that the Romans had built and made drawings where, the, where it began to walk. And the team liked those. They encouraged me to do more of them, so I did more. And the next thing you know, this Archie Arch character as a little arch who walks around and does things was created, and then his, his, fan, his, his fan base was created of different, different characters that come from the world of the inanimate objects, the inanimati. And suddenly we had something to draw on every day at, at lunch. And that, that was, a, it, it still is. It's an incredible passion in the studio that... Anytime we start digging out archaeology, we start drawing like crazy. Well, to go to lunch around here means you have to ride the hills to get up to the restaurants or, or the places where we have lunch. And we, I put everybody in my car and take them. And we were talking about uh, Archie and what his attitude towards life would be if we gave him a voice and would he 
you know, what would he sound like? Stuff like this. And I hit a bump, really bad bump with the car. And everybody in the car went, ooh. You know how you do that? Like, mm-hmm. ooh. You, you got, maybe you didn't get hurt yourself, but you just feel that, right? The whole car felt it. It's like, ooh. Except for Sada, who's one of our designers. She was in the back in the middle. And she went, <laughs> I have to tell you, I mean, we just completely broke up laughing. And I said, that's it. That's Arky. That's his attitude. I want exactly that. Sada, come into the studio. Please record that. I want to hear that. That's going to be Arky's voice. If we're going to give him a voice at all, it's going to be that. Woo-hoo! And so we did. And uh, of course, getting her to do it right the second time took forever. Right. But uh, the spontaneity of it was just so beautiful. And so we, we kept at it. So, uh, so Arky's there and we're working at it. And now we have a big sculpture outside the house. When I go out in the morning, I say, hi, hi, buddy. And he's there to look at me. It's kind of cool. What I picked up from it was that woohoo. You can you can go over a bump and go, Ugh, or you can say woohoo. And I think that when you go through challenges, because we're all going to hit bumps and <laughs> all the time, that there is that choice, right? And I think that's what's so cool about that decision that you made to, to give him that voice, because it really is a powerful powerful reminder that uh, I think one time I read an article that you can some some scientist did a brain scan and looked at someone who was uh, super scared and super excited and the brain scan came out exactly the same it was just the point of view of the person that was different that's really beautiful and you could really you could really understand that too and yeah the, I like to keep Arky's voice in there so when we're writing the scripts I'll insert a woohoo every once in a while and the team will look at me and say, you know, I don't think Arky would actually say woohoo at that point. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't. And I say, well, you're wrong because he would say woohoo because that's exactly what he would do. He would do it exactly at those moments where the rest of us would go, uh, he'd go, woohoo, let's do it, guys. You know, and that's kind of the attitude we want to keep with him. Yeah. I remember pushing my son on a, a bicycle and when he was learning to ride a bike and he'd fall off. And I, w- I would do that woohoo when he'd fall off because I remember thinking, I want him to think about when he falls, not as like a, oh, it's horrible when you fall, but more like kind of hurts, but it shows that you're doing it, you know? And, and that's a, it's a cool, it's a really powerful thing. I, I invite everybody to definitely check out the Archie Arch work that you're doing, but let's, let's talk about to, to finalize the conversation. I'd be curious to talk with you a little bit about, about growth overall. And interestingly, whether you see it as something you can design or apply design principles to, or whether growth is something that you have to just let go, have happen, and not engineer a little bit. Because I guess back to that ceramics class that I took recently, I remember blueprinting exactly what I wanted to create. It was this Inception coffee cup, like a coffee cup within a coffee cup, and I had this amazing idea, and I went in there, and I started to pull it together, and I went, God, I don't, I wouldn't want to touch this thing. This is This thing's an interesting idea but in reality when i started to actually build it it sucked so it made me realize i just have to pick up a piece of this and and start going with it um instead of trying to overly design it so be curious like as people think about growth in their own life and as you apply your the, the mastery of uh the world that you live in around designing things and thinking about design how you see that intersection uh, it's it's a very important point, uh, you know. Just that's one of the reasons why in Archie Arch we decided to have the characters mature, so we could show what happens when they actually go through a phase of adolescence. 
and try and make it not scary to kids, but at the same time, not predictable either. You know, that's, 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 that's one of the really cool things about it. If, if you follow the story, the, the characters do go through a maturing process. They do become adolescents, but they, they turn into things that they didn't expect to become. Hmm. Yeah, that egg beater turns into a lawnmower, which was not really what he expected. <laughs> but but uh, uh, I think your experience with the ceramics is a very interesting one. Uh, I would refer you to that, that great quote, I think it was by Eisenhower, where he said, planning is everything, but plans are nothing. Which means you have to go through a long phase of preparation as if you consider every uh, possible contingency that may happen along the way of this this next phase but when you're in it actually doing it don't expect it all to follow that roadmap be ready to react on your feet and that of course is is the the most powerful message that anybody can give to to people who who are interested in how they will move forward in life is exactly that invest time in trying to understand how to do your life better i mean this is what uh, the etudes were written for for the piano right so that you can uh, learn how to make your fingers feel completely at home with the keyboard. But when it comes time to do a spontaneous uh, jazz uh, recording, you're not playing an etude. You're, you're allowing that naturalness to come forth and reacting to it as your body has kind of been trained to do. It's not predictable. And that, that, of course, I think is a great thing about life if you can manage that. So for you, what's the, uh, if you think about yourself, the last thing that really, when you were in it, maybe changed your point of view, like something that happened to you where you were going along with it, you were, you know, your plans were nothing, you were just kind of in the moment creating, but something happened where you went, wow, I I just have now a completely different point of view than I did before. Oh, boy. You know, unfortunately, I, the, probably the correct answer is that is like literally every project I've ever worked on works like that. It's it's having this ability, I think, to actually admit that your preconceptions were taken down the wrong path and say, whoa, this is where you have to go, um, to, to understand that that moment, it will come. Uh, and when it does come, you kind of have to be ready for it. This is a, um, uh, this is a long lesson in, in design. For, for me, it was anyway. It takes a long time to, to kind of get your head around that. Uh, I think what helped me a lot along those ways was uh, understanding things from a, a kind of a, a metaphorical point of view. Uh, I'll just give you one example that when we were doing a lot of work in, uh, in cell phones and uh, the whole idea of what, what is networking and cell phones and everything like this, all the studies I had read about this, etc., had everything to do with dealing with the people as if they were little pawns on a chessboard. They were, small objects called a user, called a, a social network partner, or called someone within your circle, or called a consumer, or whatever. But none of the studies seem to get inside the heads of the pawns themselves and give me the point of view from looking outside, looking from their point of view outside. Uh, not too long ago, I had the, the great pleasure of being at the animation festival in Torino. I think it's the biggest one in Europe. It's great. And the guys who produced Sean the Sheep were there, and uh, one of my team and I went to, to try and learn something for Arky, what we could learn about their approach on it. And they explained how they basically took a long time before they finally got inside the head of a sheep to really see things from a sheep's point of view turned out to be the, the critical change 
to understanding how to make the character funnier and, and, and more appealing. So we, of course, went right back and got our heads instead of egg beaters and stuff like that for Archie. But that was the same uh, um, phenomenon that happened in this uh, cell phone project when, when we were dealing with cell phones and wearables, was to finally get inside the head of the people and see things from the inside out. And um, that was this was when you understand that there's a difference between products which are about me and projects which are for me. And I will tell you right away, about me trumps for me any day. When we were doing that project, um, uh, this was at the time when, when watches were very uh, popular issue to come out, you know, wearable uh, electronics in a watch format, a, a wristband format. Uh, I had the idea of sending the team on a uh, fact-finding mission to Rome for a long weekend. So I told them, okay, you're all going to go to Rome for this weekend. And they were all super excited. Like, this is a really cool idea. And, uh, okay, I want you to go there. I want you to understand how people are using communication devices and how they use their world around them, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody was hyped on it until I said, and by the way, no cell phones, no laptops, no pads, no nothing. nothing not a single thing that uses electronics. I gave them one camera that was totally old-fashioned, you know, barely took pictures. I said, you have this to document with, but nothing else. And these guys went into crises. They said, you, you, we, we can't do that. We can't live without our stuff. I said, you will live without it for three days. Yeah, but I mean, how will we know what time it is? Well, l look at your wrist, you know, on a watch. Well, we don't wear watches. Well, look at the clock. Listen to the bells. They've been accurate in Rome for 2,000 years. You know, maybe they'll have to be. <laughs> <laughs> and we put the girls and the guys in two hotels uh, over a kilometer apart just to make sure that you know, they actually had some stress in this. And the guys had to walk the girls home every evening to make sure they got in their hotel okay, and, you know, stuff like that. And they came back so charged, so completely, completely saturated with actually having observed people and trying to get into the heads of these people instead of momentarily being distracted by the real world and then getting back to what they really want to do, which is take another cell phone or make another selfie. It, they came away with wonderful, wonderful insights. So th those are nice moments. Those are nice moments. And it actually reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if you've read this book called Different by Young Me Moon. She's a Harvard professor. But inside the book, she was talking a little bit about how we track other people and other ideas, how companies track other companies, how students track other students in terms of what they're doing and what they're creating and the decisions that they're making and how in some ways bad it is because we all create this herd like action where we're following each other's uh, ideas too much. And uh, I think young me was talking about education and how this one teacher was, uh, did a test where, you know, the teacher's observation was, geez, you know, I've got this systematic approach to stamping out sameness in students where, you know, they, they're pretty good at, at art or they're pretty good at math, but whatever they're not good at, I'm told like they're supposed to spend more energy at what they're not good at versus what they really are good at and investing heavily more, a lot more heavily in what they are good at. And her point was when she would give uh, instruction to students where they did not have that same framework, they did not, it was not about 
whatever it was that the teacher was giving them, but more of a, a loose assignment, kind of like the assignment you gave your folks, where it was like, look, you, you can't use any of these other guidelines. You can't use any of these other tools. You're just going to have to get into the subject matter and come back with whatever comes out of you and being inside of that subject matter or being inside of that moment. So that's what it really reminds me of. And it, and it was a pretty powerful, I think, lesson when you start thinking about the education system and how the decisions we've all made in terms of how we invest in different areas of ourself. Well, you're, you're absolutely right about, I mean, that's very insightful. And, and I think the point of this herd mentality that you began with is probably the, the critical thing. Uh, you know, the, who was the author who said that, you know, most people don't have the courage to act in the film of their own life, let alone direct it. <laughs> and that's, that is, uh, who is it? Uh, Tom, Tom Robbins, I think, said that. Um, it, it's very, very true. And what I try to, to preach to my guys is this old saying that you have to know when to shoot your own dog. And we, we forget that we carry around dogmas that are our own making, and they're formed by the people around us as references and as role models until we think this is the only way to act. And they become so strong uh, that they, they keep us from actually discovering many more parts to ourselves and to the creative world and to things we could offer other people because we're, we're held back by what, what was once a, a good companion, this dogma. But at a certain point, you've got to know when to shoot your own dog. You know, when they get rabies, you can't farm it out. You have to be the one to take it out. And that's what I tell these car designers. You have to know when to shoot your own dogmas. Yeah, it's kind of hard to know when when is it right? When is when is the right time? You know, how do you get to that moment where you're like, this is now, uh, this dog is you know got gas and uh, has rabies <laughs> and. <laughs> I don't know, the dogs with gas to be shot at. We'll just let that go right now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we did this in the, the project that I was telling you where we kind of went on beyond Gina. Uh, we, we roadmapped what are the current barriers. Like, what is a barrier you can't go through in car design? I'll give you an example. Symmetry, okay? Mm. Symmetry is a theoretically unbreakable barrier. You can't do something asymmetrical. It turns out you actually can do things asymmetrical. It's just, you know, people have an aversion to it for whatever reasons. But once you get past that point, you begin to open up ideas in your head. Uh, another barrier is this idea of surface continuity. Surfaces on a car have to look perfect. You know, one flows into the other very smoothly. There's no interruptions. It's done by super high quality stamps, blah, 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 blah. Well, once you get past that and say, okay, what's an imperfect surface? What would happen if we did cars with imperfect surfaces. What could that help us do? And there's examples where that could, in fact, give you solutions that make the world a better place and cost less money and uh, make a better environment. But we don't want to look at them because the idea of surface continuity and being perfect is so hardwired into us as car designers that we just don't know how to deal with that. Yeah, I can, I can imagine Apple putting out a product that was imperfect and what that would what that might look like it would be a very huge deviation for them yeah to put it mildly <laughs> well i'm not i'm not advocating i'm not advocating imperfectness in a sense that makes our world wrong or products are less high quality or they, they don't have reliability or whatever else like that i'm just asking uh, uh, particular sets of designers to begin to reassess their idea of where their aesthetic boundaries are at 
you know, we Curtis Sand is played in like a football field, okay? So a football field, you have to get all your action done. You have to solve your problems. You have to confront your, your challenges. But you're not allowed to step over these edges, right? These boundaries on mm-hmm. the sides. Because if you step on that, you go out of bounds, you're not playing the game anymore. You're not playing football. You're going to stay play football. You're going to stay in the bounds. Well, car design is the same thing. You're going to do car design, you have to stay in the bounds. What are the bounds? Okay, some of the bounds I just mentioned, boundaries I just mentioned, like uh, symmetry or, or perfect surfaces. But there's other boundaries out there, you know, really scary ones like, I never saw that before. Well, there's a boundary, you know, or that costs too much. I mean, that, that, that'll freak a lot of people out. Or the best one is, that's not our brand. You're a heretic at that point. <laughs> yeah, you better believe. It. So, what, what, where, where have you reached lately for inspiration? What's, what's really kind of got your attention and interest, either per- personally or professionally? Or, I mean, what's the thing that's energizing you the most lately? Well, it, just to tell you that the Baroque churches here are are really fantastic, and I don't know if you follow architecture at all, but to me, um, it's a beautiful example of forms follows process because. Until those churches came along, or that building style came into into vogue, uh, buildings like this were built out of giant stone blocks. And because to quarry stone is expensive, takes a lot of energy, you tend to make the stone certain sizes. You make it too small, takes too much work to make it. Um, when you're making stone for Gothic and, and Romanist churches, you only cut it in a certain size because you're quarrying the stone. And that's why these buildings are basically forests of pillars inside because that's how you hold up the roofs and stuff. And they decorate it very nicely, but it's basically a concept of just a room full of pillars. And then Baroque came along and it coincided with the perfection of, let's say, mass-produced uniform brick. And suddenly the architects were not working with these big giant stones, which had to be husbanded to be used as little as possible because they're expensive. Now they're working with a really cheap material that anybody could make. And to me, it's digital architecture because every brick was like a pixel and they could spread this stuff everywhere. And suddenly you have buildings which are not an empty box full of pillars. They're instead these giant volumes scooped out in romantic and exotic ways. And if you take people to a series of churches like we have in this area, they can see that entire process um, uh, evolving before them. And they do really get the idea that, you know, form does follow process. What's, what's really nice is we're taking apart a piece of this old uh, building here to, to rebuild it as a studio. And, of course, they take the old bricks out and they clean them because we want to reuse them. And when they clean them, they find all these bricks that have footprints in them from animals because the bricks were laid out to dry in the sun. And then, you know, all kinds of animals, wild animals, dogs, everything walked all over these bricks and left their footprints in them. So now, you know, hundreds of years later, we have this testament to, to life in a basic construction medium. And I find this super wonderful. I can't imagine working in an environment where you can just go over and be surrounded by that kind of amazing, in in a way, technology, right? That was the technology of the time uh, inspired by the design um, uh, that went into everything like that. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful image. Chris, thank you so much for fighting the good fight and challenging us to think bigger and sharing so much of this insight with with everyone. Oh, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate the, that uh, you asked me to do this with you, and I thank you very much. And I hope you you continue to like the work we're working on and let me know what you think about it. I, maybe someday you'll do your show from our place, and that would be a lot of fun too. Love that. Love that. Take it easy, Chris. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 
A huge thanks to Chris. If you'd like to learn more about him, as well as take advantage of the links that I've pulled together of different topics and resources that we chatted about in this specific podcast, be sure to head over to growbigalways.com and visit the episode's page, handcrafted by yours truly. And hey, while you're there, sign up for our email. It alerts you to every time we have a new episode and also proactively sends you the same resource links that are on that episode's webpage, and that saves you a trip over to the web. Also, remember, GBA is a non-commercial podcast. It's completely supported by your engagement. That means it fires me up and I keep going because of it. So please add your comments, uh, drop me a line, give me some kind of feedback so that we can make this show better every week. I wouldn't be a good host unless I was listening to you. So until next time, and thanks for listening. 